the Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, in June of 2018, you and I started this podcast with the idea that there is so much on the creative and innovative side of the legal industry that just wasn't getting talked about enough. And now, nearly five years later, we are 200 episodes in, and quite frankly, I feel like it's still as relevant today as it was from day one. I agree. I mean, I think it's actually better. Um, and we just, we, we even have more to talk about than, than we did uh, back in 2018. So thank you to everyone who's listened to the Geek and Review over the years. And we're excited to start working towards 200 more episodes. Oh, that's a lot of work. So (laughs) (laughs) it's all worth it though. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. So we thought it would be great to bring in our good friend and fellow geek, Toby Brown, to be our guest for this episode. So we reached out to Toby a few weeks ago and asked what he'd like to talk about. And without skipping a beat, he said, that, well, I've had these discussions with Nita Sanger on law firm strategy, and that would be a great topic that would fit the innovative and creative theme of the podcast. So we did exactly what he told us to do. Uh, so <laughs> As we please, always do. <laughs> so please welcome Nita Sanger, Director, Digital Advisory Services at Cherry Beckert, and Toby Brown, one of the original three geeks and CEO and founder of Deviate Legal Strategies. Nita and Toby, welcome to our 200th episode of The Geek in Review. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I was thinking about it because I have I've always been number two, yeah. so I think number 200 is... Just obvious. We'll, we'll bring you back for episode 222 as well. So, <laughs> so Nita, your work there at Cherry Beckard is to help transform professional services firms, including law firms, whenever they look to digitally transform themselves into positions uh, for growth which would include our organic growth or merging or acquiring another firm. And I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with Cherry Beckert. So can you start off by explaining the overall uh, mission is and uh, then explain a little bit more about, about your role there? Sure. So, so thank you. First, thank you so much for having me. So, um, Cherry Beckard, we are one of uh, one of the top twenty-five audit, tax, and advisory firms in the U.S. Um, and for them, I lead business strategy and digital transformation. So, when when you say that digital transformation is such a broad word, so people usually ask, well, what exactly is it? do. And and I say my primary focus is to help businesses to deal with the world that we are living in, which is very, it's like we call it a VUCA world, which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we help them figure out what they need to do to position themselves for growth. That's in effect is what we try to do. And, and the idea is that what we say is, and why this becomes so important is, it's like you almost need to know what, what your strategy is, where you're looking to go, and then figure out how do you actually tactically get there. That's what we help them to do. So we help them figure out in a world that's changing, what's the industry going to look like? Within that, what should what's your business of the future need to look like? And then what do you need to do to actually get there? We can all agree that law firms can always act more like mainstream businesses, but today we want to strike at the core of that and talk about law firm strategies. Uh, admittedly, more firms are grappling with that issue, but they seem to all be A, following the same strategy, and B, running the same game plan of focusing on their practice strengths. <laughs> so with each of your unique backgrounds, we'd like to get your insights on this important topic. 
So how about you, Toby? When you talk about strategies for law firms, what do you focus on? Um, good question. The And I like to tell a story. There's six, seven, maybe eight years ago, I saw an, an article um, from a managing partner. It was actually the new managing partner at Baker Botts. And he listed their strategy. And I was like, wait a tick, that's our strategy. And then I was like, wait another tick, that's every law firm strategy. And, and if everyone has the same strategy, we, I think we already know who's going to win. But then I, I thought about it some more and realized it's not really a strategy. Like growth is part of a strategy, but it's not really a strategy. And when firms, as, as you set this out, when firms think about this and talk about this, they talk about themselves, which if you're coming up with a strategy, that's part of it. But the other part of it is you have to look at the market and say, firms to say, we're good at this. We like to do this. We're, that's what we're going to chase. Well, is that what customers need? And is that what customers are willing to pay for or willing to pay, you know, premium prices for? And they, they leave that part out. So I, you know, when I'm talking to firms and others, I'm like, you really should be thinking about what the, what the market wants. And then not, and then have it be more specific. Like there is one example that I'm aware of that's a little better and it's BCLP and they came out and I was shocked. They came out and said, here's our strategy. And it had three prongs. It was disputes, it was real estate, and it was mid-market M&A work. <clears throat> and I was like, hooray, a firm finally <laughs> made a statement that's like, this is the market that we're going to focus on. Uh, the other, you know, now I'm going to totally mix metaphors, which I was doing. So now I'm on the third leg of the stool. We didn't even start off at the stool. Uh, the, the other piece that's missing for firms is, and if you think about this, many of us have worked at or working at, you know, billion dollar firms and they don't know where their profit comes from. You know, if they were a normal business and you all know, I have a car problem, <laughs> you know, General Motors can tell you where they're best margins come from and it's on loaded up SUVs typically and trucks. So, you know, this would be, if you were a firm to go, you know what, we're really good at, we're good at making mid-size and compact sedans. Well, there's in the car industry, that's not where the margins are. So it, and it would be crazy to make that decision without understanding that that's where the margins come from. So I think firms, A, they need to look to the market and see where there's opportunity, but at the same time, they need to understand whether they can make money doing mm -hmm. this. And they tend to think in at this, well, every firm I've known or ever talked to, they think all revenue is good because they think in cash basis mindset where they say, we're going to generate X million dollars of revenue this year. And so if we just manage our costs, well, we'll, we'll make good money. And in fact, I had recently a COO of a New York based firm say to me, and this was very recent, and I was just, what? He said, well, we generally cover our overhead by late September, early October. And then from then on, it's all profit. I was just like, okay. So <laughs> that's just another example that firms don't know where their profit comes from. So I, I think smart firms will start thinking that way and putting that into the calculus when they talk about their strategies. Without getting to into the weeds uh, let's go back to the the, the brian cave uh the bclp strategy um and you said they kind of got it right what what would you have added or how how would you have addressed it to say 
okay, you've got these three, I guess, legs of a stool now. What else would you have suggested that they put that really talks more about their strategy? So the first one, disputes, that's... Litigation. <laughs> that's a slightly large and amorphous category. Uh, the second one, real estate, I like that more because it's focused, more focused. But I'm going to pick on the third one, the mid-market M&A. If, if it were me, I'd say, okay, which piece of that market? Is it going to be in the manufacturing sector? Is it going to be in the tech sector? Is it going to be in the telecom sector? Because then you're saying our firm is, our goal is dominating in that piece of the market. That to me is strategy because General Motors and Ford now go, we just want to be the biggest car manufacturer. Right. They want to be the most profitable. And so they're very keen on defining clearly and saying, we're going to dominate. Like, here's a fact for you. Three of us are from Texas. One in six pickup trucks sold every day is sold in Texas. That does not surprise so, me yeah. one bit. <laughs> no, no, driving around here. Right yeah. But that would tell you if, if you're going to dominate in the, in the pickup truck market and you know, Marlene and Greg know this, you probably don't know it either, but pretty much every manufacturer has a special Texas edition. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's them trying to dominate that segment of the market. So back to BCLP, I like they've taken the right kind of step, but I would take a, a, another step or two further. Okay. Juanita, uh, from your perspective, uh, what, what are you seeing in the market? So first, I absolutely agree with Toby about the whole thing around strategy and law firms. I, it was very interesting because I was actually presenting to, at a, to the Global 100 CIOs. And it was interesting that all of them were there because they were trying to figure out what they call like the, you know, the law firm of the future or the legal desktop of the future. And all they were thinking about was how to make our people work more efficiently. And I kept on saying, well, and, and we talked about that. There was a, we, I was on a panel. We actually discussed that. And none of them were thinking about how we serve our clients much more effectively. To me, the, and I just thought that was such an interesting way to sort of approach the whole thing, that all you're thinking about is your people. And, and, and not to say that that's not important, but that's just one piece of it. You have to be saying, who are you going after? Who are your clients? What are their needs? Are their needs changing? And especially now when the role of the general counsel is becoming so much more important and so much more complex because whereas the you know the, the general counsel was always brought in or the corporate legal department was brought in, okay, we've, we've done all of this, now you just create a contract for us. Now in a world that's changing so rapidly, they almost need to have a seat at the table much early on because as you're making decisions about using which technology, et cetera, you need to have legal a seat at the table, which means you need to understand what their needs are and then what you need to be doing to to effectively meet those needs. and. It's just, it's always kind of shocking that they don't do, they don't think about it in that fashion. Who my client is, what are their needs, how are they changing, and what can I do to serve that more effectively? Then the second piece, you, which, which I always think is interesting, is that what I'm seeing from a strategy perspective, a lot of the, the, the largest firms have been doing well. They've not had a, much of a burning platform for change. They keep on raising their rates, and it seems to be so far working for them. What you always find is that the next year, after you get past really the top 20 years, so the next ones realize that the market is changing. 
They are the ones who are feeling the pressure. And so now they're thinking of what they need to do to have different strategies to continue to grow their business or to think about what they need to use technology to become much more efficient. Do they need to have more things like a, you know, we create like some kind of a startup. And I just found that that was very interesting. And so that's where you're starting to see a lot more activity. And to, and they always say, right, when change comes in, it's come from the lower end of the market because those ones are much more hungry and are much more adaptable to change. To me, that's what I'm actually seeing. And you're starting to even see that with some of the deals that have got announced, that it's that lower end. You've, you've heard of like Oric and Buckley, Taft and and Jaffe. And, and there have been talks about things like Sherman Sterling, which I think right now it's not going to happen. But but I think that's what's happening. That It's the, the ones who are more hungry, who are feeling more the pressure, who are actually sort of thinking about doing things differently. Do you have uh, some examples of where you're seeing firms get this right? So... What I'm seeing is firms being innovative or trying to be innovative and doing things differently. So I'm sure you've heard like, you know, Wilson Sonsini started its own digital hub. Denton started Next Law Labs. Baker, Hotstyler started Incubator. So they're at least thinking about things differently, which to me is sort of saying, okay, so now they're starting to realize that just continuing in the same way, you cannot, you, you have to think about things differently. And when you see this across in other industries, that's what they do because they always say for you to disrupt yourself from within your business is going to be very hard. So you create like a startup that almost sits outside of the core business. And that's what you're starting to see some of these doing. And I saw that at a big four when I was trying to transform their, you know, $9 billion business. That's exactly what we did. We got it outside. So to me, that's actually a good start. But sometimes when you, and when you sort of scratch below the surface, what you find is that they're doing the same thing, like focusing on inwards. How can we do things a little more efficiently? They really aren't thinking boldly enough. Like how can we disrupt our own business before somebody else comes and does it to us? So that's that's kind of an interesting balance that you, and they need to be thinking more more aggressively. Yeah, and I'm wondering, I mean, is it the business itself that's kind of holding them back? Because, you know, we talk a lot about how incremental change in firms is usually very successful, but, you know, a lot of the very disruptive types of, of change, um, you know, chat GPT aside, you know, mm-hmm. often don't happen often. Um, so, you know, are, are they kind of up against something that they, they you know, that they can't win? Um, I'm not sure that it's that they cannot win. It's till now, to be honest, the legal industry has been quite insulated, but we've already started to see that in a lot of other industries where you cannot continue in the same way and not and not change. You're going to have to think about things differently. And I think what this comes down to is almost figuring out what's the core value you bring to your clients. The core value is legal advice, which means that's the most high value activity you should provide to your clients and continue to do that. And everything else that's non-essential to that, figure out how you can automate it. You can outsource it. Or, or just like, you know, is it is it necessary to be done by your team? Can it be just given to somebody else? You know, it can be standardized, automated, or outsourced. That's the way to think about it so that you can focus on the most high-value added activities. And then as you continue to do that, think of what else you can do. We just talked about the changing needs of your clients. So I think the opportunities are huge. You can continue to say, this is my world, 
But now if you're, you can see that your clients' worlds are expanding, then what can you do to meet their needs more effectively? And that, that's where you can think about, hey, maybe I could do an acquisition. Maybe I can form a strategic alliance with someone who brings a capability which I don't have, but my client might be needing. So there's, I think the opportunity is just you need to have that mindset of thinking sort of a little bit of outside the box. Absolutely. Um, so Toby, how would having a strategy change a firm's focus and operations? Um, I'm going to go back and I'll leverage that BCLP comment I made, and I'm going to overlay with something Nita just said. If BCLP or a firm said, "Our we're going to dominate in mid-market M&A in the tech industry. Nita talked about, you know, the IT people were like, oh, we're, here's where we're focused on. And it was internal. And the reason I believe that they make that focus is because that's safe. They can, they'll have just associates saying, we need better drafting tools or we need better this or better that. And they're not, there is no strategy involved. And so if you're not countering any strategy the firm might have, but what that begs the question is, how, how do you make an IT investment priority decision? You can't. If your firm's strategy is to grow, then you're going to invest in I, any IT that might lead to growth. Um, whereas if you're, if you're focused on mid-market M&A for the tech industry, that tells you almost every decision your firm should be making, your business should be making. What sort of professional development should you focus on? What kind of hiring should you do? What sort of tech should you have? You know, should you be focused? You know, I, I've been on some of those same calls where there are round tables. And in fact, recently you, you mentioned chat GPT, Marlene, and someone's like, oh, we're, we're trying this and we're trying that. And I said, you should step back and say, what part of your firm drives your profit and revenue? And that's where you should make an investment. And I always pick on the poor labor lawyers. If you have this M&A practice that throws off labor work, I would not be making big investments in labor tech and labor process and all that kind of stuff. I'd still be making the investments in M&A. So I think it, if you have a strategy, all of a sudden, all those decisions are far easier to make. And then the CIO, they know when someone comes to them saying, hey, here's a new technology that helps in M&A, they go, yeah, I really want to see that versus labor or whatever, you know, product liability. I don't know what the others would be. So that, to me, it's like the filter for how business decisions should be made. And without a strategy, in fact, my last point here, and this may have been a firm I worked at recently, I found out there were over 500 databases. And I'm like, that sounds right. I must, I must just said about, I said, holy something. <laughs> and then, and then I said, do you guys even know which ones are being used and how much they're being used? And I got this look like. No one's ever asked us that question. <laughs> so I was like, if you had a real strategy, it would be really easy to go down that list and go, this, these are not, these are not strategy and profit driving tools. Why do we have them? So interesting. Yeah, it's like, who's using them? Who's using them? Are they part, you know, is that business part of the, the core strategy and are they, are they using it? So Nina mentioned that strategy, we've been talking to strategy as a core issue. Yeah. And Toby, I think you were highlighting some things here in terms of, of what firms, you know, need to be thinking about in terms of developing a strategy. So where in, in real life do you think firms are, are getting this wrong and why? So what I tend to find is that 
where firms are getting this wrong is because they almost feel like, well, nothing is going to change. Because when change is happening initially, it seems it's these little bits and pieces. So I think that's what they keep on saying. No, this is how we've been doing it. This is how it's going to continue. And and industries such as legal, are, you know, that's what the nature of the beast is, that that's, what they, that's how they kind of perceive things. But the, the reality is if you start looking at every other part of our life has changed so drastically, there is a need to think about things differently, which means that you, if you've done things the same way, is there a different way of doing things? But the one thing to recognize is that change is incredibly hard. People are in, very resistant to it. So what becomes key is to then almost starting creating that culture of change. So just to give you some examples that where you find that change comes in, people who are doing the work will be the ones who actually see it first because they're doing something that is so incredibly painful that they start saying, hey, is there a better way to do it that I'm not spending hours of my time doing it? So that's when you start to create that culture of change. To just give you an example, when I was transforming an audit business, the person who was actually going and doing inventory was getting so tired of having to go in there. You go there, you go count, you make a, you make a mistake, you come back, you fill in your report, you go back. So he said, I just found that so painful. Then I, we said, why don't we create an app that could do that for us? So all that, what I'm trying to say is then you start creating the mindset for all the people who are there within the firm who can then think about this differently. So it's, it's creating that culture that everybody thinks of themselves as a change agent and you'll find that that's what with the more the more junior people because they're used to using their phones for everything. So creating something that can be done, which makes their life easy because they're seeing that in every other part of their lives. So they're like, why can we not do it in this? I think that's where and 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 that's why it has to be more than just very tactical. You have to have that strategic thinking and that that also the thinking has to come from the top. So the role of leadership when it comes to something like strategy is so critical because they have to be willing to sort of see, able to see, you know, basically almost like looking around the corner, seeing where the changes are, not where it's today, but where they're going to come from next. That becomes incredibly critical because they will decide the strategy and then everybody else kind of, you know, executes on it accordingly. Uh, I'm just curious with the focus here on, on strategy, um, in, does every firm need a chief strategy officer to help keep everyone in line, or is that something that can be built into the overall process of how how the firm addresses change and and goals for the you know the next year to three years? Well, I think firms need something like that. I don't know that they need to call it the strategy person. They might call it a commercial role. But if you think about all the departments at a law firm, none of them, for the most part, except for, of course, practice management, are the business. There's the IT people running IT. There's the marketing people running marketing and, and you know, and all, HR and on and on. But which department that a law, at the law firm, what would you call it that is just worried about the business? There isn't right. one. And so it, a strategy person can become that. Um, but I think right now, a lot of strategy people, it's a kind of a nebulous <laughs> thing where I'm all, it's not, it's not the business. That's my remark to that. Nita, feel free there. No. So I agree with you. There needs to be someone who does it, who, and that person almost needs to be almost like the equivalent of the right hand of the CEO. You can call them by whatever title, 
but they need to sort of understand what first what the leader wants to achieve, then help kind of say, okay, now this is what we're trying to get to, and then help figure out what and give suggestions about what the strategy needs to be. And it needs to be the thing of, okay, so what are we trying to achieve? Where are we going to get it from? Almost so the, if the CEO says, I want to grow by five million, so where is that going to come from? Which are the clients we would get it from? What's it going to take? Which industry? What are we as a firm going to be known for? And that, Toby, goes back to what you said. You almost need to be able to define that very clearly. I want to be selling the best, what was it, trucks in Texas. You need to have that level of specificity. So that's why you need that strategy person. And it's going to be like, who am I going to get it from? Who are the people I'm going to go after? What's it going to take to win them? So yes, you certainly, you definitely need someone who's thinking from that point of view. Because, and I know a lot of times people tend to think maybe it's the the COO. And in some cases, it might be that that person but it really depends on the firm. It cannot be the CIO because they are very busy making sure that the, the technology within the organization works. And I would say that the strategy person needs to be the who understands the business. So it could be like, and, and so Toby, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts because I don't know whether you need both a strategy officer and a chief operating officer, but that would be kind of good to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, I would, I would put, most COOs really as operational, so not okay. not strategy. And they oh, would okay. they would benefit from strategies. Mm. They would know where to focus operational resources. All right. But again, what I'm saying in the market, the strategy people kind of sit off to the side where they should mm. be at the center. If I had to pick someone at a firm that I said was the business, practice group leaders may be the closest mm. thing I could find. Okay. Can I can I take up the your question, Marlene, of what, what's wrong or what's what? Yeah. <laughs> what's wrong and why? Go for it. Because it picks right up from what we're talking about. The why piece of it is, I just said, I think the closest thing to, to the business is the practice group chairs. And I can say this now because I'm not at a law firm. <laughs> law firm leadership, people, it's a part-time temporary job. Mm-hmm. Just let that soak in. Mm-hmm. So these are people that are chosen, elected to run a business unit. And at my last firm, you know, the largest practice group, that's a $300 million business. And it's not that these people aren't smart, but they have no expertise or experience in running a business. Yeah. So there's problem number one for the why. Um, and the, that even applies to the managing partner. And if you've got a board, executive committee, management committee, again, those people, they're doing it for a period of time, and I've seen it time and time again. They can't wait to get out of that role because it just burns them up and they have to keep their practice going and all stuff like that. So there, there's layer number one. Layer number two for the wide is lawyers, again, very smart, capable people, they like to, and how many of you guys have heard this a thousand times, I just want to practice law. <laughs> And that's, they went to law school and they just want to practice law. They don't want to worry about the business. But an aspect of that is they want to do what's interesting to them, which I can't fault them for, but that means they're not saying, I want to solve my client's problems. I want to solve my client's legal problems. They're like, well, no, I want to have the most interesting litigation I can do. I don't want to do boring litigation. Um, So that's that's strike two. (laughs) Strike three is our part-time temporary leadership, their core focus is not 
clients. So I've, I was counting in my head and I've lived through at least six and it might be seven managing partners. And what keeps them up at night is not that the clients are going to fire the firm. What keeps them up at night is that a partner might leave. And this was a rule one of my mentors gave me years ago uh, when I was at the first big firm and he had a couple of golden rules and he goes, anything that might cause a partner to leave is immediately going to get killed as an idea or decision, which back to the BCLP example and why I was impressed that they did state those three, as soon as a law firm says, one of our course, you know, strategic folks is going to be mid-market M&A for tech, there's going to be a hundred partners that go, that's not me. Are you telling me I don't belong with this firm? Should I be looking? You keep this up and I will be looking. So that's what keeps the managing partner up. It's not strategy and, you know, the long-term profitability of the firm. I'm sure part, many managing partners are going to disagree with that statement. But I just tell you from experience, that's their number one concern is almost always will partner lose. It, I'm sure you can add it. to what you said, Toby. Can yes. I add to that? It's a different skill. Being a good lawyer, it's a very different skill. Being good at marketing is a different skill, which a lot of them we know lawyers are not, but to actually run this as a business. And especially so so that's that so it's not everybody has that skill. The second piece of this that also becomes like very key is in a law firm, when the only thing you're valued at is that you're a revenue generating partner, to then go into a role which may be viewed as being more administrative because you're not bringing in revenues, even if it is critical for running that organization, is not given the same level of importance. And that means, and and for every lawyer who's, who's sort of like, you know, how much it's like, what's the profit per partner? How much money am I going to get into my pocket? to then be taken out of that kind of a role, even if you are the CEO, for, to them it's almost like a demotion, even if the title sounds bigger, because then you're not in a revenue generating role. And in some ways, I think that's a little bit of a mistake of how law firms, they are businesses and that's what they need to think of themselves as. And if you don't do that, you're not setting yourself up for success. Look at any other services businesses, they will have people who bring that ability and if you don't do that, that you bring in people who actually know how to run a business and are rewarded for doing that effectively, that those are those two things, unless you get that correct. And that's the, the, the industry hasn't quite figured out how to get that correct. So Nita, on a recent podcast for Cherry Becker, where you talked, uh, you were talking mostly around strategy when it comes to law firm mergers. Mm -hmm. So you said something in that interview that really caught my attention, and that is new buyers of services tend to not want to become clients of a firm until all that integration is completed with the acquisition of, of another firm. Can you talk more about the customer experience or CX and how law firm leadership needs to take that into consideration as they're creating that overall strategy for the firm? Absolutely. So the thing that what I was trying to say when I when I mentioned that was that at the end of the day, what clients are looking for is like a seamless experience. More often than not, they don't care what you have at the back end. They want to be able to go into one single place where they're able to get all the needs that they're looking for met, where they need to get information. They want to see, you know, where their case is, where, where it is in the process. And if you're not able to provide this to them, 
that to them is not a positive experience. They will go to someone who can provide this. And we have seen that in so many different cases. And I think in some ways, if you think about what we've been spoiled by play, like all the different sort of platforms that we go to, like you go to the, you go to Amazon, you go to Netflix, they remember about you. They remember what your likes and dislikes are. In some ways, that's what they're going to be expecting even from the law firm that they go to. And unless we're able to do that, and and like we've been talking about, that's something that law firms haven't paid enough attention to. And I think, Toby, you mentioned that too. They're very focused on, well, we are experts in X, but it's not looking at it, or we are experts in this, you know, in this area of, of law, but it's not so much looking at what are our clients' needs and how can we meet them in a more holistic fashion. To get your clients to be more sticky, that's exactly what you need. And you need to be able to provide that. And so that, like I said, that's why the technology becomes, it's like that enabler to provide them with that seamless experience. And so I know you're, you're probably well aware of this, but I'm going to state the obvious. Um, but the legal industry itself tends to think of itself as, you know, different from all the other uh, professional services firms. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to what do you see in the other industries that are common that the law firms could adapt that would help them in setting the overall strategy of the firm and be successful in, in a long run? So the first, I would say, so there's more than one, obviously, but the thing that I would want to start off is I think that the role of leadership, where you actually have leaders, and, and, I, and I've come, I've done a lot of work in consulting and an audit and tax. And so you're talking about industries which are actually bringing a lot of those capabilities where you have people who bring that. So that one has to be the capability that the leader is able to think about the business in a much more holistic fashion, which I think is incredibly critical so to to make a business successful and to grow. And if you think about it, like, like I've come out of the big four, where each of their service lines is like $9 billion, $10 billion. So if any of their service line actually dwarfs even the largest law firms, you have to start thinking about it in that fashion. The second part is having the ability to invest back in the business for growth. I know the way law firms is like at the end of each year, you're like, whatever you make, you you sort of give it out to everyone. In effect, consulting firms are as much partnerships as law firms are. But I think the model there changed where you're already sort of, you put aside a certain amount of revenues you take away from like the partner's pockets to put into the business so you can continue to grow the business, especially in a world where technology is changing so rapidly. And you have to continue to be on the cutting edge of it. And then Marlene, I know you mentioned like chat GBT, et cetera. That's one. There's so many others that are going to continue to come in and you need to have the ability to be able to invest in it, to be able to experiment and say, okay, what exactly does this mean? What's it going to mean for us before you kind of bring it into the business? So I think those two things will become in, are, are incredibly critical. And this is what we've seen. The other industries that have been successful have done that. And I would say this, that some of them have seen more the burning platform for change. Just to give you an example, like the audit business, you started to see that the margins were flattening because clients were like, this is not adding value to us because doing an audit on backward looking really doesn't add that much value. Tax, it, there's a whole portion of it that is repetitive, et cetera. They're like, why are we paying so much money? 
So that and and that's what you start to see. Then the businesses are starting to have to think about where is it that we are bringing real value to our clients, and then let's just focus on that piece. Everything else that's non-essential to that, let's just figure out what we do with it. Either we automate it, we outsource it, we send, we we run it as a as a shared service or a managed service. And I think that's the other one that the legal industry kind of could benefit from thinking about the business in that way. So providing all the tools and technologies to be able to for, to make the people more efficient and then just focusing on the most value added activities. So, um, you know, Toby, you have a creative view of law firm acquisitions. Uh, you know, how do you feel that that relates to strategy? Very good question. And thanks for putting this out there. I actually think in many respects, this is the tip of the sword. So if you have a strategy and Nita mentioned it earlier, is it organic or is it not? And organic is promoting partners from within inorganic or outside of that is acquisitions. And so if you think about a company like Apple, if they're going to grow, they know exactly where they're going to grow. And then they have an M&A team that goes out and scours the market for players that can either augment what they have or fill holes in their business. So when I took over the lateral partner programming Perkins six years ago now, I, I looked at it and I said, this is not talent recruiting. That's barely ever what we talk about when we talk about laterals. I said, this is straight up M&A. So I renamed the program, the Lateral Partner Acquisition and Integration Program. And we treated it much like Apple or Google or any of them would treat their acquisitions. We, number one, as you might guess, profitability was an assessment. Uh, it wasn't just, oh, we have a, a book of $5 million. It was what kind of work is it? What, how well leveraged is it? Are you getting your rates? And I actually swung my pricing person over from pricing to this because she had that background on profitability and could make that assessment. Uh, we had other due diligence factors as part of this, portability of the work. It, it was far more an M&A approach. And there's now companies like Decipher that actually are third parties that can help you in your diligence. So it's an emerging thing. Sadly, most firms I'm aware of don't really have a strategic acquisition type focus for their lateral acquisition program. It's very opportunistic, which is what Perkins was when I got there. It was like 80% opportunistic and we flipped it towards probably now like 90% strategic. And you end up with a strategy matrix that says if, if it's a priority one, it gets to the highest level of resources committed to it, then on down. Um, in fact, we ended up with a side uh, program we called the Strategic Growth Working Group, which was looking at more than a onesie twosies if we were going to acquire a firm or a practice group or something like that. So it was highly, highly strategic. Um, the last best aspect of it that I mentioned was integration. And again, think about it. If you're Apple and you're acquiring a company, you don't wait until all the paperwork signed to go, okay, now we need to integrate this. Integration starts way before that. And so that at Perkins, that integration aspect got involved early on, well before we'd come to an agreement. Like, do we have a business plan for this person? What does it look like? And then once they, once it was a deal and that started, boom, we had this plan where we integrate them with the right practices, the right clients. Um, and Perkins actually had one of the highest, um, lateral retention rates in the market. And it's because we're treated it that way and not like 
oh, a recruiter came and said, look at this. You should acquire this partner. <laughs> That's not strategic at all. So I, I really do think the lateral programs are like the tip of the sword of strategy. That's where you really see it come into focus. So thank you for throwing that question out. What, what Toby said actually applies even when you do an acquisition of one firm with the other. You have to think about this in a much more strategic way. You need to be thinking about it, not like, like Toby said, not after you close the deal. And not just think about, okay, how do we get the technologies to, to work together and make sure everybody's got the same PCs and on the same emails. It's actually thinking about, okay, we did this for a reason. What are we hoping to achieve from it? And then what do we need to put in place to tactically execute on it. So there's a lot of planning that needs to go into it and almost like creating like a program management office because when you're actually doing the integration, it is it, it requires bringing together all these different pieces of the business. And it's also making sure that you bring people along on the journey. You're bringing two sets of groups together. It could be that like people are gonna be like, okay, so what is, you know, Greg's coming in, what does it mean for my job? And then Greg's going to be like, well, what, what's going to happen? I'm going from the, the firm that is getting acquired. What am I going to be doing? There is so much ab about this that one needs to be thinking about. So there is the, the people piece of it, which you which is very critical. There's the technology side, but it's also the business side. What are we looking to do with it? So I think it's very, very critical. And to be really successful when you do an acquisition, you don't just give it to a lawyer and say, okay, now this is like on the side of your desk. Why don't you do this? Because that's not going to be effective at all. Well, now we are at the part of the interview where we ask all of our guests the crystal ball question. So, Nita and, and Toby, we're going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball and look into the future for us. And, Nita, let's start start with you. What do you see on the horizon for the next two to five years in, in the legal industry? And, uh, you know, just how do you think if or is is it going to have any change in how it looks at strategy? So I would say, so let's start off what I think is going to happen from the law firm, what the law firm of the future would look like. So just as we've been seeing that in other industries, I almost think it's going to become a little bit of like a platform play because the law firms have really good relationship with their client. They are their trusted advisors. So what, what I think is going to happen is they're probably going to be more of a technology platform that they're going to be using to interact with their clients. It's not just going to be lawyers who will obviously continue to be the key people, but it's going to be, they're going to be enabled by a technology platform that, that lawyers are going to be like, that the clients are going to be able to come into. And then the, the law firms are going to be able to provide services using that front end, which is a technology enabled to bring in different kinds of services, et cetera, to meet their clients' needs more effectively. You're probably going to be going beyond just providing legal advice. It's also going to be that you will be productized offerings that your people are going to be needing. So I think it's going to be a much more wider range of services that you'll be providing. So there'll be productized offerings. There's going to be what legal advice, but it's going to be if they need, your clients are going to need information on risk or if they need analytics, all the other services that they're going to need given the expanded role. That's how I see them interacting with their clients. So having deep insights and having information that would help their clients run their business more efficiently. And then at the back end, how people operate, it's probably going to be, you know, 
from a talent perspective, it's not just going to be full-time lawyers. It could be specialists in particular areas. You'll create a platform where you will have people who want to work, you know, in a fractional. They might be remote. The people part is going to be that way. And so it's going to be a really interesting combination. It'll be using a lot of technology solutions or legal tech enabled solutions at the back end. So at the back, it's going to be really complex, but integrated way of how the business is going to be run. So I see it actually very, very different. But where a lot of time when I find when you go for any of these conferences, it's like here we are the lawyers and they are the vendors. I think that's also going to change. It's going to become much more integrated because they are enabling you to be more successful. I think that, and to me, some of those things are going to become, so the change is going to be very much that way, that where the legal industry or the the law firms are going to treat the legal techs not as just vendors, but actually helping them be more successful and and the whole platform plays a very different way of how the industry would be looking. So Toby, what does your crystal ball tell you? So Nita and I have agreed on a lot, but here's where we shall diverge. (laughs) Okay. So talking with two different legal ops people recently that will sort of bring home my less than favorable view of the future for the legal profession. These are both uh, legal departments with hundreds of lawyers in them. And they both basically said well over, well, over half of the lawyers in their legal department have independent buying authority. When the first one said that, I went, wow. And then I thought, well, yeah, that's because the frontline lawyers are the ones who decide which firm. I've said this before where I'm like, I don't want to be on your panel because I have to negotiate a big discount and your, your lawyers are going to hire who they want to hire anyway. And if I'm not on the panel, I'll still get hired and I won't have a big discount. But here's the hardest part of that. So I asked them both, well, will your general counsel mandate that there will be a more rigorous process for how outside counsel is chosen? And the answer was absolutely not. So that's why I don't think, I think, you know, chat GPT does have obviously capabilities that could change things, but until both law departments and law firms start saying, you know what, frontline lawyers, you don't get to make all these decisions anymore. We're a business, we're going to standardize, we're going to, you know, create processes. We're, we're going to make decisions based on business, not about what you think or want to do. I think what has happened is lawyers, and this is part of their ethical credo, they have an independence of judgment when it comes to the law. But that has bled so far into operations and business decisions that it's like every partner is its own little business inside a firm. So I'm less rosy about <laughs> if you, which I would actually would prefer what needed described to actually happen, but until that gets broken, we're going to plod along. Yeah. I'm, in fact, I already know some firms that are like, you're not even allowed to talk about generative AI and large language models because that will put the client's privileged information at, at risk. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> so there, there's mine at E or counter. <laughs> all right. But Nita's, uh, but I think, I think all the listeners are going to, uh, hope for Nita's crystal ball to be right. And, but prepare that Toby's crystal ball is actually right. So, well, Nita, Nita Sanger and Toby Brown, I want to thank you both for coming on our 200th episode and, and celebrating it with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. 
If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Almost forgot my handle there for a second. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll put uh, Nita and, and Toby, we'll put your guys' uh, social media links on the show notes as well. But uh, let's go ahead and, and let people know where they can, can find you. Nita, what about, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm ha- happy to continue our discussion. And Toby, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, too, uh, and numerous other places, but LinkedIn's a good one. And listeners can always leave us a voicemail on our Geek & Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye-bye.